right, here we go. Yes. For those of you that don't know what I just did, you're missing out. American Idol. I have three girls, and uh, Dahlia, my middle one, we, we, we try to watch American Idol with them as a family-friendly show, but dude, seriously, I'm going to write the producer because there's some stuff on there. So we fast-forward, do the TVR thing, but Dahlia, my middle one, every, at the beginning, you know, Ryan Seacrest comes down in the, in, the, in the crowd, and he's like, this is American Idol, and I'm not even kidding you, Dahlia will do it with her. This is American Idol! It's terrible that this is what it's come to, but uh, welcome, so glad you're here. I'm super stoked for today, uh, one, because this series has been an absolute uh, joy and journey for me, um, and hopefully for you guys. It's I get the sense that, I, I've talked with a few people about it, and the sense that I get is that this is a challenging thing we've been discussing and talking about, but I feel like it's finding a, a home in our hearts, if that makes any sense. Uh, I, I sense like a little bit of angst, uh, uncomfortable, uncomfortable, I don't even know if that's a word, it's not. I feel that it's a little uncomfortable at times, but I think it's a good thing. So I'm, gl- I'm really excited about it. Um, and for those that are just joining in, uh, one thing, we've talked about uh, questions like what is justice? Uh, what is poverty? How do we define it? Uh, we've, we've talked about things like restorative justice, which we find most of the time in the scriptures, especially as it relates to God's people, and retributive justice, right, where someone uh, reaps what they sow, where they get what they deserve, kind of our typical understanding of justice. Uh, we've talked about shalom, this Hebrew concept of shalom, the, the, we- the webbing or the weaving together of God and, and humans and creation in equity, fulfillment, and delight, this concept in the Bible that we find. And today, I want to I take it one step further. I want to I take the next, what I think is a very natural step. We've been talking about this for four weeks. So it's kind of the so what, you know, as a, as a preacher guy taking classes in seminary, you always want to answer the so what question, right? You've been in a place where someone talks and talks and you get to the end and you're like, okay, so what, right? Like, what am I supposed to do with that? Or um, so what? Why would you tell me that? So that's kind of what we want to do today. And, and I want to ask the question, how do we become people who do justice? How do we actually become people who do justice in the world? And so what I want to do today is give you three easy steps on how you can become people who do justice. <laughs> I'm glad that a couple of you laughed because one, that's not me. And two, I'd be an idiot to try to do that, right? Because it's impossible. But what I do want to do this morning is this. I want to ask some really good questions, what I, and I think are good questions. Um, you can determine that after we're all done here. But I want to ensure that we as a community are moving out of the realm of ideas and into the realm of reality. Where we're taking some of the things we've talked about conceptually, and we're trying to figure out what does that mean as I live my life day to day, at my work, in my job, at, with my family, with my kids, all of that. And I want to ask, are there practices, or maybe even more importantly, are there postures that we can cultivate in our hearts that will move us one click down the road, that will move us one step closer to being people who do justice? And let's be really honest about this. This is a huge topic. It's a huge uh, 
a, it's a meaty, uh, weighty thing that we're discussing. And we're not, we're not thinking, I'm not assuming that we're going to ask, uh, that you're going to do like a soul overhaul in five weeks, right? That's not really um, recommended, nor is it possible. Some of you in the mental health professions will probably agree with me that change in a person's life takes time. It takes uh, the changing of habits. It takes challenge. It takes new ideas, education. It takes a lot of things, and it takes a period of time. Uh, and, and hopefully, as we're entering into this, it will take the Spirit of God at work in our hearts and in our lives. So we're not asking anybody to take, you know, jump a, a single a building in a single bound or however that phrase goes, but we're asking and we're hoping and we're challenging one another to take one step. What does one step in this direction look like for each of us? Um, so I guess I want to start by stating some obvious questions or some obvious things. If we're trying to answer the question, how do we become people who do justice? I want to state some of the obvious things. I think they're obvious, but I think we have to start here so that we're all kind of working from the same perspective as it were. So just real briefly, real quickly, before we get into constructing something, let's deconstruct a few things. Uh, what will not work? If we're talking about how do we become people who do justice, what will not work in this process? I would say a couple of things off the bat. Number one, uh, what will not work is religion. Uh, if you have your Bibles, look at Amos chapter 5. We're going to be just read a couple of verses from Amos 5, starting in verse 21. And we're familiar with this passage. We started here in week one, or I th- actually I think we talked about it a number of uh, weeks ago in a series on worship. But Religion is not going to work for us. Look at what the prophet says in verse 21 of chapter 5. This is God speaking. He says, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Any or away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never flowing or never failing stream. How do we become people who do justice? Religion is not going to cut it. And by religion, I mean, look at what the prophet is saying. Look at what God is saying to the people of Israel. These people are doing everything that religious people should do right? They're worshiping in the temple. They're singing songs. Kara, we're in trouble, right? Uh, They're playing guitars. They're playing harps. They're doing all these things, and they're doing it for God. They're doing it in in a sense, you know, a gathering of people as they come and they worship, and God says, I hate what you're doing. I despise it. In fact, it's noise to my ears, clanging cymbals. Do away with it. I'm done with it, which is uh, problematic to say the least, right? Because what's missing here? What does religion do? Religion takes something that had meaning in the beginning. These things that we participate in, the songs that we sing, the way we gather, the forms that we have in religion, they have meaning, but over time they become what? Routine, habit, things that we just do because that's what we do. And so you have this You have this empty shell of something that had meaning in the beginning, but that no longer carries any meaning. But you continue to do these things because that's what you do. Religion, in the most pejorative sense, in the most negative sense, this is what it is. Where we have these forms and these skeletons or these structures that, this veneer, if you will, but on the inside it's empty, it's shallow, it's hollow. 
And when that happens, God says, I am, it, it makes me sick. I hate it. I despise it. If we're going to become people who do justice, religion, rote, habit, and ritual will not do. And I think that we can probably culturally really relate to that, right? Rote, habit, religion, uh, ritual where we go do something that our parents took us to as kids and we just keep doing it and keep doing it. Have you ever sat in a religious experience and thought, why are we doing this? I, I drive home often thinking, why do we do what we do? Right? On my worst days, I think, what's the point? Good questions to ask. Religion's not going to cut it. If we want to become people who do justice as a, as a part of our life, not as an exception to the rule, religion's not going to cut it. I would say, secondly, guilt and shame are not going to cut it. And we'll get to this a little bit more. But suffice it to say, guilt and shame do not create lasting change in a person that stems from transformation. Just let me, let's do a little uh, uh, crowd participation here. By show of hands, how many of you in this room have seen the church use guilt and shame as a way to motivate people? Raise your hands. Okay. For those that didn't put, keep, keep them up, keep them up. But for those who didn't put deodorant on, just do one of the alligator arms right here, right? You're not sure, okay? Raise your hands if you're sure. Uh, how many, okay, so those who have their hands raised have seen the church use guilt and manipulation as a way to motivate people, guilt and shame. Now, keep your hands up if you've been the recipient of this motivator by the church, guilt and shame, okay? Look around, still a lot of hands raised. Now, keep your hands raised if guilt and shame has worked to create lasting transformation in your heart, keep your hand up. Look around. Carter in the back. <laughs> He's like, dude, totally, man. I love it. <laughs> That's awesome. Or is that Jack? Did I get it right? No. Jack. Okay. Sorry. Guilt and shame are not going to work. If we're talking about becoming people who do justice in the world, religion, guilt and shame, not going to work. I would say third, assumptions. Uh, assumptions are not going to help. When we're talking about poverty, we're talking about hunger and issues related to them. It's been my experience and the data and the research that I've been reading will confirm this, that when you have predominantly white, upper to middle class evangelicals involved, a lot of assumptions are brought to the table. I don't say that to make you feel bad. I say that so we can be educated about this. But research and data would say that when you have people who are predominantly from upper to middle class people, or, or stratus, uh, social status, you know, socioeconomic status, and they're predominantly white, and they're predominantly evangelical, when you get those three together, you have a lot of assumptions that are brought to the table that really aren't helpful. And when that happens... We have all kinds of problems. One, it's not helpful, but two, it doesn't help create hearts and people who do justice from a place of grace and gift. Rather, it reinforces the root of the problem, which is the self-centeredness of the human heart. We'll get to this a little bit more as well. But when we bring assumptions to the table when we're talking about poverty, justice, hunger, these kinds of things, we run into, we, we get, we get, 
we run into problems very quickly. Uh, one other thing, what doesn't work, religion, guilt, shame, uh, assumptions, I would say simple money-based uh, definitions of poverty, right? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. When we understand poverty primarily through the lens of a, a, a lack of material resources, what we get is a very reduced understanding of poverty. And, and if we understand poverty as a lack of material resources, what has to be the response? Material resources, right? How you define poverty dictates and determines what your response will be. Let me say that again. How you define poverty dictates and determines what your response will be. Because if you think the issue is money as it relates to poverty, then your response will also be resources. It only makes sense. And that will not cut it. Here's a study that was done by the World Bank in uh, the early 90s, and they visited 6, 000, uh, 60,000 people in the 60 most impoverished countries of the world. And here's what the voices of poverty said about the experience of poverty. This is from uh, the country of Moldova. This person says, For a poor person, everything is terrible. Illness, humiliation, shame. No one needs us. We are like garbage that everyone wants to get rid of. From the country of Guinea-Bissau, we read a bunch of these. I'll just read these too. When I don't have any food for my family, I borrow. I feel ashamed standing before my children when I have nothing to feed them. I am not well when I am unemployed. It is terrible. Friends, when we relegate the definition of poverty to material resources, our answer to solve the problem will only be connected to material resources. And this is not sufficient. The experience of poverty from those who actually have been through it will tell you that it's, it has a whole lot more to do with emotional, sociological, spiritual, psychological things than it does material resources. So how we enter this conversation uh, is, is huge. So a couple things that won't work, religion, guilt, shame, assumptions, and these simple definitions of poverty. Now, we don't want to be criticized of the classic postmodern deconstructionist, right? We're just going to tear everything down and then stand there and look at it and go, man, what a mess, right? Because that doesn't help anybody. Derrida was helpful, but we got to help reconstruct some things. So if these things won't work, let's talk about a couple things that I think will actually help us get going in the right direction. I'm not offering silver bullets here. I'm not the answer, man. That's not the role of the preacher or the prophet or the teacher. I want to help us think better about this. So I want to offer a few thoughts. How do we become people who do justice? I would say this. Number one, unless we connect poverty to shalom, we have no chance of becoming people who do justice. Unless we connect poverty to shalom, this biblical concept we've been talking about, we have no chance of becoming people who do justice. And I want to start by offering a lens through which we will see all of creation. Uh, I I recommended a book a couple weeks ago called When Helping Hurts. These authors uh, posit this in in a particular way, and and a number of other authors do as well. But I want to submit to you that when God created the world, so when he wove together God and humans and creation all together, he did so with the strands or the threads of relationship. He did so with the strands or threads of relationality. 
So woven into the fabric of the universe and what it means to be human, to interact with God, each other, and the world around us is the fundamental building block of relationship. And I want to submit that from our perspective as human beings, there are four fundamental relationships that we were created to live in and among with this idea of shalom, that things are woven together in equity, fulfillment, and delight. The four relationships are our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, and before you throw red flags, okay, it sounds a little psychological, sounds a little crazy, sounds a little, uh, you know, whatever, uh, but stick with me. God with ourselves, because a proper understanding of ourselves as a being is critical to a proper relationship with God. If we don't understand who we are as a person, we can't relate to God authentically. So we'll work this out. God, ourselves, others, right? Community, the other people on the planet, and the actual world that we live in. So four fundamental relationships that from our perspective are are this thing called shalom that was created. When this exists in proper uh, balance, the relationship between me and God, me and myself, me and you, and me and the world I live in are all in balance. They are, they are woven together in equity, fulfillment, and delight. This is the Hebrew concept of shalom. You all still tracking with me? Okay. If we don't frame some of these things through the right lens or through a better lens, we run the risk of getting very reduced understanding understandings of things. I'm going to come back to shalom and poverty. I want to illustrate it by using sin. Typically in the church, among evangelicals, when we talk about sin, we do so through this lens. The Greek word for sin uh, is hamartias, and it has to do with this idea of missing the mark, right? So it's this bullseye. How many of you have seen this idea before? You know, it's this bullseye, and what, what we're trying to do is hit the bullseye, and when we miss the mark, that's what sin is, okay? Unfortunately, when we do that, sin gets reduced to personal moral decisions that we make, right? It's, it's, it's me, and when I do something and I miss that mark, then I sin. And if that's my understanding of sin, the gospel, which addresses the issue of sin, Dallas Willard says, becomes a gospel of sin management. How do we manage sin, So if our understanding of sin is reduced down to this personal uh, moral choice that I make, and when I miss the mark, then I sin, if that's what our understanding of sin is, then my understanding of the gospel becomes that which addresses or manages the problem of sin. It's very, very reductionistic. We know from Scripture, and if you've been around Awaken or you've heard me for a while, that the gospel is so much bigger than that. It has to do with all of creation. It's the restoration, the redemption, the making of all things new. Everything. The trees, the plants, the birds, the fish. I love fishing. The people. Everything. Right? So the gospel, if we view it through the lens of a, of a particular understanding of sin, becomes reduced to this thing that manages Do you see what I'm saying? Are you following so far? Likewise, if we don't connect poverty to shalom, what we get is a very reduced understanding of poverty. What happens when you connect sin to shalom? This big, fully-orbed understanding of God, uh, myself, us, the world that we live in. It grows, doesn't it? 
The gospel begins to grow when you connect sin to shalom and not just missing the mark. I would say likewise, when we connect poverty to shalom, it begins to grow. It begins to to take on flesh. Uh, If shalom is the fundamental building blocks of the universe, which is relationship, get this, guys, hang with me, please stick with me. Then those who experience poverty is anyone who experiences the brokenness of shalom in the world. If we connect poverty, not to just material resources, but to shalom, because these four relationships are all working in fulfillment, equity, and delight, if we connect poverty to that, and we understand poverty through that lens, let me ask you a very, very, very important question. Who is on that list? Who is on that list who experiences poverty? Everyone. Everyone. Does not all of humanity prior to Christ or outside of the work of God experience a deficiency of spiritual intimacy with their maker. That's poverty. Does not every single one of us experience in some way, shape, or form, I would argue, even if you're a Christian, a broken relationship with yourself, a broken understanding of ourselves, which manifests itself in a lack of self-confidence, which manifests itself in a low self-esteem, or the, or the other side of that, a God complex where we think we have it all together and we have all the answers to bring to the situation. That's poverty. That's a broken understanding of who I am as a self and how I relate to God and others. Does not all of humanity experience a broken, uh, uh, the poverty of broken relationships in community? which shows up in abuse and extortion and manipulation and racism and oppression. Right? That's poverty. And whether you, ex- you, you experience the, the, the doing of that or you, experience in the, you participate in it, you experience poverty. Does not all of humanity experience a broken relationship with the world that we live in, which shows up in a number of different ways? One, laziness. The world was created for us to rule and subdue it, for us to be able to make a living, for us to be able to provide for the people around us, for us to be able to partner with God in the ongoing work of creation. And when we don't do that, Proverbs tells us all over the place that when we don't do that, we experience a poverty of relationship to the world that God made for us. Or conversely, when we work and we think that work will give us identity and work will give us meaning and value, we experience a broken relationship between the world that God made for us and us. Does that make sense? So if you don't connect poverty to shalom, what you get is a very reduced, I would say, binary, uh, anemic version of poverty, which doesn't address the issue. But when you do, you begin to realize that every single person in this room, whether you have money or not, can and does experience poverty. Now, 
this is where it gets really good. When I enter a conversation or a situation where hunger and poverty is present, and my understanding of poverty is that it's, it's a lack of material resources, but I have enough, how do I enter that conversation? Like this, right? Maybe not explicitly, but implicitly. I, I enter that conversation and that relationship from a position of power and privilege. And my assumptions are that somebody here has needs and somebody doesn't. My assumptions are that somebody is impoverished and somebody isn't. My assumptions are, because I have, I, I'm not impoverished, that sometimes people deserve the help and the grace that, that we're offering, and sometimes they don't. And this, my friends, is a nasty, diabolical lie. And you can probably see and put the pieces together why often when white, middle-class evangelicals are you putting those pieces together. But what happens when we understand when we see poverty through the lens of shalom and we recognize that while you may not be uh, monetarily impoverished, there may be all kinds of other ways that you experience poverty. And instead of this, we enter the conversation like this. What is now possible that was not possible in this client uh, what's the other person? Clientele, you know, this have and this have not situation. What wasn't possible there is now possible here. Does anyone want to take a crack at what it is? Relationship, mutuality, equality, justice. You tracking? So, how do we become people who do justice? If we don't get this, if we don't see this through the lens of I, my initiation of this whole series in my worst moment comes from a place of poverty because I want to look good to you guys as your pastor. I want to be the person who's leading by example. I want to, I want to feel good about myself that I'm helping, right? That's the worst case scenario. And there are moments of that. I'll be perfectly honest with you. That will not help. In fact, it will hurt those we help and it will hurt me. And it will hurt you if we enter this conversation and this whole one thing from that perspective. Man, I this is so fundamental. And if we begin to understand this, I think it opens up. Because <laughs> when we do this, now we enter the conversation and we say, guess what? I'm broken. You're broken. Let's see how Jesus fixes us together, right? It's not a I have and you don't. But it's we're both in this mess together. Let's together figure out and watch how Jesus does something. Because that's the gift of the gospel. That's grace. And that's what Jesus offers on the cross. But when we co-opt it and say, I have something and you don't, man, that is problematic in so many ways. 
We have to link it to shalom. I would say, lastly, that we have to link it to beauty and to pleasure. And this is absolutely connected to the first. If we don't connect poverty to shalom, we run the risk of believing the lie that we're not impoverished because we have enough material resources. And when this happens, justice, our act of justice in the world becomes a means to an end, right? And what's the end? In the worst case scenario, it's me feeling good about myself. It's you propping yourself up. It's, it's me being a good pastor. The means is justice and the end is my feeling good about myself, right? And when justice becomes a means to an end, ha, 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 where did we start? Amos 5, right? When justice becomes a means to an end, what we have is empty, void religion that God despises because we're trying, we're attempting in some way, shape, or form to earn, to get ourselves in the right position, to place ourselves in the right spot so that God's favor is on us and he's happy with us, so that the the gods aren't angry. I don't actually believe there's more than one God. I'm just using that as an example. For the record. But when justice becomes the end in and of itself, we're on to something. Turn to Isaiah chapter 58. We've been, we've been in, and, in and around this passage the whole series. Isaiah 58. God says this at the end of this, uh, verses 13 and 14. He says, If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day. Now get this. If you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please and speaking idle words, then you will find your joy. And I will cause you to ride on the heights of the land and feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob and the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Notice what the prophet says about delight and joy. Until you call the Sabbath a delight, it will always be law. Until you call the Sabbath a delight, until you respond to the grace that you've received by living into the Sabbath, it's a gift, by the way. It's not a command. It's a gift. Until you call the Sabbath a delight, it will always be a burden. It will always be a law, and it will never be joy. When the Sabbath is a means to an end, it will always be law. It will always be a burden. But... If Sabbath is delight, if it is an end in and of itself, if it is a response to grace and gift, you will find your joy. And I would, I would, I would even submit to you. What is, what does the next verse say? And I will, God will do something, right? God will, isn't this what we're after? God empowering the church to do something and be something in the world? Remember we talked about guilt and shame? How do Christians often motivate? Through guilt and shame. What did guilt and shame actually access in the human heart? Condemnation? If I'm going to motivate you through guilt and shame, 
I'm actually accessing the self-centeredness of your heart. Because why do you respond to guilt and shame? To get out of Dodge so that you're not in trouble, so that God loves you, so that God accepts you, so that your religious community accepts you. Guilt and shame may work for a time, but they are always exposed because they tap into the very problem that causes injustice in the first place. Why is there injustice in the world? Because of the self-centeredness of the human heart. Friends, Einstein said you cannot use the same thinking to get you out of the problem that got you into the problem, right? You've heard this before. You have problem A, and it was created by this kind of thinking. What he's saying is you can't use the same kind of thinking to fix the problem. It's a kingdom divided unto itself. I think I've heard somebody else say that before. That's Jesus um, in the Gospels. If we use guilt and shame, if we use justice as a means to an end, what we're tapping into is the self-centeredness of the human heart, and the self-centeredness of the human heart is exactly what's gotten us into this problem. It's illogical. It doesn't make any sense. It's jerry-rigged, right? We jerry-rigged the heart using guilt and shame to motivate people to do something, but it will always fall apart. It will not last because it's using the same motivation that actually caused the problem in the first place. But when justice becomes an end in and of itself, what we find is delight, what we find is joy. When justice is a part of just beauty, delight, response to God's gift and his grace, what we find is joy. Let me close with this. Until we connect poverty, and I know I've, I've, I've rambled here a lot and I've said a lot of things. I want you to see if you can just focus for a second or 30. Until we connect poverty to shalom and frame it in terms of broken relationships, those of us with enough material possessions will always be tempted to see justice as a means to an end. And whatever that end is, it's different for all of us. For some of us, it's checking a box. For some of us, it's about looking good. For some of us, it's about leadership and and whatever. Until we connect poverty to shalom, we will always run the risk, those of us with material possessions, as a means to an end, a way to check the box. But when we recognize the true nature of poverty, we begin to see the profound nature of God's gift and his grace to us in Jesus, and we can participate in acts of mercy to the most vulnerable among us from a place of equality, mutuality, gift, and grace. Friends, until we understand how impoverished we all are, and until we recognize the gift that God offers in Jesus, we will not become people who do justice out of delight and out of joy and out of response. It will always be duty and law and religion, and it never works. You'll get tired of it. Guilt does not last. I can make you feel bad, and you'll leave today, and you'll feel bad, and you'll drive home, and you'll be like, oh my gosh, I really should do something. But we can do a pretty good job of anesthetizing guilt. Right? Or for a week, it may work. Maybe a month, I don't know. But uh, maybe it's just me. I do a really good job of forget 
conveniently forgetting about the moments when I felt guilty. (laughs) So I want to challenge you to think about this from a different perspective. How do we become people who do justice in the world as a way of, as a, as, as a part of our life and not an exception to the rule? Thank you.